Uh, Father, we're grateful for your kindness to us and your son. Thank you for a rich morning where we uh, we get to see young children baptized and we get to remember our own baptisms, Lord, to, to know that you have claimed us in that water and made us your own. And I pray that you'll let um, our baptisms continue to be a means by which you encourage and sustain us spiritually to know that you have made the initiative toward us. And Father, I pray for us during this time together this morning that you'll bless us, that you will bless those who are bearing burdens. Um, we think especially today of Sis, she's in the hospital, that you will strengthen her and give her a due sense of your presence and your mercies. And um, so Lord, meet with us today. We, you already have, and we're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. That is it's all saints. I just forget. It's a good day. It's a good day to be at church, isn't it? That's great. Um, I know it, yeah. Yeah, although we were we were with the Youngs for Halloween last night, and we've decided we prefer it that way. Because then you don't have to go out so long and not as much candy. We, we have a process in our home where over time, we with the kids not knowing, please don't tell them this, but with the kids not knowing, we grab handfuls and they go into the trash. It's like, I don't know what happened. The Lord has taken away. We don't know. Okay, so let, let's press on here in Zechariah. Um, we're we're going to try to get through today. Uh, chapter five. Okay, so we're just—it's just going to be a real fast. Brace yourself, uh, seatbelts on. Not a lot of fluff, I'm afraid. Uh, so chapter two is the is uh, vision number two. All right, or actually, I should say vision number three. And if you remember correctly, in the first seven chapters, seven eight chapters of Zechariah, we have a series of of uh, these night visions that are going on. And uh, the night visions are visions that uh, the prophet Zechariah has. And it's good, I think, because you can get lost in the, in the trees of, uh, of the book of Zechariah. It's good every once in a while to bring our heads up to remember what we're talking about. In other words, the issues that Zechariah particularly, given the fact that his name means the Lord will remember, or the Lord remembers, that's indicative of the message that Zechariah is bringing. The Lord will remember what? Well, the Lord will remember His covenant with His people. The Lord will make good on His promises to His people, even when they're in a moment of time, historically, when they should be experiencing, according to their own understanding, the fulfillment of God's promises. In other words, we're on the far side of the exile now. We went to Babylon. We suffered your judgment. Now we've come back into the land. And in this particular moment in time, we expect all of those promises that we heard from the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel and Hosea all the way through Micah. All of those prophets that were in the pre-exile and the exilic period promised a future day of hope where the nations would stream and they'd be taught the law of God and there'd be peace and our pruning hooks would be turned in. I mean, our, our swords would be into pruning hooks. All, all of those promises, now's the moment. And you look around and the wall's in shamble. The temple's not there anymore. Um, the, the governmental infrastructure that we know we need to be able to actually support all of these efforts to identify ourselves both politically and religiously are gone. And this brought an enormous amount of confusion and spiritual, theological, and existential angst for the people of God on the far side of God's judgment. Because now we're in the moment of mercy and promise, and it's not quite adding up to what we thought it would be. So here's someone like Haggai and Zechariah come onto the scene 
to announce to the people of God that, guess what, the prophetic message that you knew in the pre-exilic period and in the the exilic period is the same prophetic message. And that message is, return to the Lord. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Come to Him um, in, in acts of repentance, and He will meet you again. And... Hold fast to the future promises of God, even when in the current moment those promises don't seem to be um, uh, measuring up. So this is when we come to Zechariah chapter 2. I looked up and there was before me a man with a measuring line in his hand and I asked, where are you going? And he said to measure Jerusalem and to find out how wide and how long it is. And then the angel who was speaking to me left and another angel came to him to meet him. You get the scene of chaos here, like angels are coming and going. And he said to him, go tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the, of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within it. Now, it's, I mean, we could stop here and I won't. Don't let me. Um, <laughs> Um, But it's a fascinating thing to see here that the way in which the understanding of Jerusalem and Zion within the Old Testament, it continues to function for us as an understanding of how God conceives of the land. Um, It's a fascinating thing, and I'm trying to get my head around this now in another project I'm working on, but it is a fascinating thing to try to come to terms with the theology of the land in the Old Testament. You think about it, for you systematic theology people out there who like reading theology textbooks, and I know there are a few of you out there. um, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that theological issues arise in the life of the church in response typically to problems. Uh, Oh, goodness, Marcion's on the scene and he doesn't think the Old Testament uh, should be authoritative anymore. Well, we've got to address that. Um, Arius is on the scene and he thinks there was a time when Jesus was not. Well, we've got to address that. And as particular problems arise in the life of the church... Theological minds and pastoral minds have to address that on the basis of the Bible and the tradition. That's how they engage the theological issues. But that means that often theology is a theology of crisis. It's dealing with problems. Um, You will not find very many systematic theology books that have chapter 33 through 75 on the land. And you just don't, you just don't find very much of that talk in Christian theological discourse. But I'll tell you what. You spend any time in the Old Testament and you turn the page, three or four pages, and you're going to be dealing with an issue related to the land. So what does it mean that God has attached himself to a particular place, to the land there? Um, Jonah, and we get this in the Minor Prophets, Jonah understood this. If I can get to Tarshish, the other side of the world, if I can get away from the epicenter of the land of Jerusalem, then the further away from Jerusalem I can get, the further away I can get from the call of God in my life. Now, Jonah's theology wasn't all that bad. Because we tend to think of Jonah as, boy, he sure got a big dose in the face of God's omnipresence. Jonah, have you not read your, what, you read your Westminster Catechism or your 39 Articles? I mean, God is everywhere. You can't escape God's presence. But we forget that God in the Old Testament is present everywhere, but He's especially present in particular places. Jerusalem and the Temple and Zion being that particular place. And here you have... And this third vision of Zechariah, where someone is measuring now the walls of Jerusalem. Why? Because this is the problem. Our walls are gone. Our fortifications are gone. We need to build these back up again and start to chip away at bringing back the infrastructure that we need, both politically and religiously. And the angel says, stop. It's a wasted effort. 
because you are the children of Zion, the offspring of Zion are going to expand in such a way that these borders that you used to know aren't going to be the borders of Jerusalem anymore. And in fact, the wall that you're hoping for will be the Lord himself as a wall of fire around the city. What an incredible image. That's Exodus imagery, isn't it? Uh, how did the Lord protect them and guide them in the land? By a cloud and during the day and by a pillar of fire at night. And I will be a pillar of fire encircling the land. And that will be um, the wall and the territory that continues to grow as God expands his kingdom. I mean, if, I, if you go to the book of Acts, and again, I think it's worth thinking about Jerusalem remaining the epicenter of God's kingdom. I think there's something to that, frankly. But when you go to the book of Acts, how do you see the centrifugal motion of God's covenant and missionary purposes as he begins in Jerusalem and then he moves to Judea and then out into Samaria? Can you see these little this, the drop, the big drop of the gospel in Jerusalem in the person and work of Jesus begins to ripple effect out through the known world and then into the uttermost parts of the world, right? I, mean, th I think this is the kind of scene that you have here in the book of Zechariah, that the offspring of God's true children, the offspring of Abraham, will be such that the traditional borders that you knew of the land will not suffice to hold the people and the animals. Right? This is not enough. So he tells them, uh, you know, the Lord will be that. And verse 6, Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Um, you know, this is a, there, there are debates interpreted with Zechariah at every turn. Here's one of them. Well, who in the world is the prophet talking to? Uh, most think that the prophet is still speaking to those who have remained in Babylon and have not come home. That's, that's, I think most scholars think that's the case. But what you have here, you have here an announcement to come out of your bondage, to come into the place of God's um, work by his spirit, the work that he's doing here to rebuild his land, and he's coming, he's, he's trying to bring them back from what he scattered. Verse 7, come, O Zion, escape you who live in the daughter of Babylon. We're going to see before today is over, Babylon's not the place you want to live. This has come out of Babylon, and he has honored me. He sent me against the nations that have plundered you. Uh, verse 10, shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, because I'm coming. I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. And I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will, the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Um, this is liturgical language. It's our, in our liturgy. Let all the earth keep silent before him, is I think the traditional translation on that, which you'll find in the book of Amos, and you'll find elsewhere in the Minor Prophets. Let all the earth keep silent. Why? Because the Lord is on the move. Now, it's hard for me not to sort of draw from C.S. Lewis on this one. Aslan is on the move, right? The Lord is on the move. What is he on the move to do? To gather his people from the four corners of the world. that He, has, he scattered them. And now he's going to gather his people from the four corners of the earth and he will be their God. He will dwell with them. He will be among them. He will be their people and they will be, he, they will be his people and he will be their God. It's the covenant fulfilled. It's why, by the way, when you begin to get into the New Testament epistles, I mean, gospels, you see in the gospels this kind of language. And the word of God dwelt among us. You know that, hear that word dwelt? That's the, kind of the same language that we have here in Zechariah chapter 2. 
the Word of God is dwelling among us. The tabernacle of God is with humanity. God is with His people. And it's not now bound by borders that we've come to know and associate with the land. It's bound by the infinite nature of God's presence among His people as the ring of fire continues to expand of God's own presence around, around His people. So this is cause for shouting and for rejoicing. And it's also cause, verse 13, for um, silence and stillness and rest. Well, verse uh, chapter 3, let's go to the next uh, vision. But again, I'm just going to fire these at you, I'm afraid. Are the seat, uh, yeah, well, we're, we can do it, we can do it, I feel good today. Um, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, this is the vision of Joshua the high priest. Now, this is important, and it's worth having a kind of some schema in our mind to recognize that Zechariah here is dealing specifically with two issues that have become problematic in the, in the land of Judah. Number one, the priesthood, right? When, when the temple was destroyed, preconceived notions of what it meant for the priesthood to be the, the priesthood had to be reconfigured. So the priesthood was in a shambles. And the promise for a king of, from David's lineage, that's a problem too. So the priest and the king, which we know are integral to the way in which Israel conceived of her faith, of her covenant relationship with God, both of those are problematic. And so we're going to have here our new high priest on the far side of the exile named Joshua. And of course, you know, goodness, the, the, the church fathers had a field day with stuff like this. Where I, even me, I have to admit, even I tend to be a little bit, res, you know, a little reticent. Don't, don't run to Jesus too fast. Um, let's let the text do its work and then we'll go to Jesus. I mean, I, I, I'm a little bit like that too. I'm, I'm a product of my own training. I'm sorry. But the truth of the matter is, you, you read a church father in Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua, the high priest, who is symbolic, who typifies for us Yeshua. You know, it's the same name, right? Yeshua, Joshua, the salvation of our God, the high priest here. It's fascinating to me that the first high priest on the far side of Israel's exile is a figure named Joshua, who then comes in and acts in acts of righteousness for his people. Listen to the description of Joshua. So Joshua, the high priest, is standing before uh, the angel of the Lord, and Satan, oh, this gets fun, is standing at his right side to accuse him. Now, you do know this, right? That the Satan, or Satan, is understood as an accuser. That's what Satan does. In fact, um, if you read enough in the literature on this, some scholars don't really think that the whole notion about the personified Satan um, is, is might, might be a kind of later idea. I'm not much sure about all that. But the point is, what you have here is in the heavenly tribunal, there's a figure who's an accuser. And the accuser is the Satan. Um, and I'm happy to identify that straightforwardly with who we understand as Satan, the enemy of our God, right? Um, but here you have the Satan, and it's fascinating to understand that the Satan's primarily character is that of an accuser. It's what he does in Job when the Satan shows up. It's what he's doing here in Zechariah chapter 3. He is the accuser. Um, You don't have to read far in Luther's theology to understand that Luther has a very robust conception of the devil as the accuser. You remember the dreams that Luther would have that would haunt him 
about standing before God and the Satan accusing Luther of all of these sins. And what was the horror of the moment for Luther? He was right. In other words, if I have to come and bring a defense against the Satan in the heavenly tribunal of God, all the things that the Satan lays out before God, and he says, well, he's lustful, and he's prideful, and he's vengeful, and he's selfishly ambitious, and he's this, and he's that, and he's that. And here's Luther, and he says, and every word that he said is true. Every last word is true. This the beauty of this, the, again, the courtroom scene that we find with our doctrines of justification and sanctification. These are juridical terms. They find their proper place in the courtroom. Because then our defendant stands up and he says, you know what, he is right, every word of it. But I've claimed this one as my own. It's one of the beauties of... My wife and I were talking about this um, in response to a lecture that I heard this week on um, a sort of a Lutheran theology of baptism, which is a little bit different than an Anglican theology, but still a lot to be to be um, gained here and learned from, and how important it was for Luther and how important it was for John Calvin as well in the Reformed tradition to use baptism as really the primary means of spiritual formation. Um, if it, it's you know. When you're struggling with the assurance of your salvation, I think both Luther and Calvin, though they might emphasize things in a little bit different way, but both of them would want to say, you need to remember that you've been baptized. You've been claimed in the waters of baptism. You've been claimed and, and, and claim the promises of God there. Right. And so here you have um, Joshua the high priest who's standing. And the, the Satan is accusing him. And then the Lord says to, to Satan, to the accuser, the Lord rebuke you. I love it, by the way, when people talk in the third person. It's always a little bit awkward. You see athletes doing this, don't you? Um, you know, the A-Rod hits home runs or something like that. Uh, well, here you have the Lord speaking in the third person. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Beautiful image. I've grabbed this one from the fire so that he wouldn't be consumed. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I will put a rich garment on you. And then I said, and this is again a point of interpretive dispute, put a clean turban on his head. Well, this probably goes back to Exodus and the notion of the turban as part of the high priest's um, uh, garments. So they put a turban, uh, a clean turban on his head and they clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. And uh, this is the covenant formula. If you will walk in my ways, Joshua, if you will keep my requirements, if you will govern my house, which means the temple, if you will do these things and have charge of my courts, then I will give you a place among these who are standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. Now that, again, is another fascinating deal. O high priest Joshua, and all your associates seated before you, who are symbolic of things to come. You're a type. You're a prefiguration of what's going to come in the future in its fullness. And then he goes and he says... Um, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, oh, my lands. So what do you have here? You have now the commingling of the high priestly office of Joshua as a symbolic figure 
with the branch imagery that we find all throughout Isaiah the prophet and Jeremiah. Now, admittedly, there are different terms here, but they're within the same conceptual field. Jerusalem and Israel as a tree is lopped off, but shoots come out, sprouts come out from the ground. And here you have the servant figure of Isaiah and the high priest beginning to mingle with one another in such a way that their identities are now merging. He's a priest. He's a servant. He's symbolic of things to come. There are seven eyes on that one stone. This, this is the part where translations get spooky, especially after, after Halloween, right? There are seven eyes on that one stone. Not a great reading here. Okay, I'm going to go after the NIV a little bit. Um, the eyes are probably better understood as facets or even flat surfaces on the stone. All right? So again, the eyes are being used here, metaphorically speaking. The eyes are the fat. Think about a diamond's edge, right? And you have these facets. And then God himself is going to inscribe on these seven facets. Now, of course, you know the number seven has significant um, uh, figural force to it. Seven is perfection. So here you have seven facets on one stone. And I, that's God himself, am going to engrave an inscription on it. And this is what the inscription is going to say. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. <laughs> Gives you chills, doesn't it? What is the inscription on the stone? As you see Joshua the high priest and the servant figure coming together all around the one who will, the previous verses before this, who will keep covenant for the people. This is powerful stuff here in the sense of anticipating for us our Lord and our Savior. Um, yes, does this have a direct reference to Joshua the high priest in, in uh, ancient Yehud on the far side of the exile in 5th century Israel? Sure, certainly it does. But it's more than that. And there's an invitation here to see that Joshua the high priest, who's then beginning to merge with this servant figure, who's beginning to merge with somebody who actualizes for the people of God covenant faithfulness. If you'll do all this, if you'll be covenantally faithful, if you'll be obedient, if you'll keep charge over my house, then you'll have a place that's here among those who are standing around me. We did Hebrews last year, didn't we? For those some of you who are around. This is Hebrews. I think Hebrews finds its material force and substance and source in, in, in texts like Zechariah chapter 3. He learned obedience. Something to say about Jesus of Nazareth, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnated in human flesh. He learned obedience in the school of his suffering. He became one of my favorite words in Hebrews, fitting. He became a high priest that was fitting for us. How is he a fitting high priest? He's a fitting high priest because these charges that are made to Joshua we see Jesus take them on His shoulders in ways that fulfill them to their apex. Yes, I will keep your covenant for them. Yes, I will guard over your house. Yes, I will take that onto my shoulder and be a high priest and be a servant that can be the means by which you will bring the forgiveness of sins to the people. And what's the etching that's on the seven facets of this beautiful stone of forgiveness? I will remove their sin in a single day. This is a great Good Friday text. Is it any of our lectionary put it there? They should. They haven't, right? This is a great Good Friday text. 
in a single day, I will remove the sins of my people. Why? Because of the faithful actions of the high priest and the faithful actions of my servant who comes, if we read it in Isaiah 53, who bears the sins of his people and he takes them away. Well, let's do more. No, they haven't. And in fact, when we get here to the next chapter in chapter 4, what you have is really a statement to Zerubbabel the king saying, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And what I think the force of that is, God will sustain you to bring forth the, 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 the final construction of the temple. So when you have Haggai and Zechariah together, these two books are often read in tandem, the one with the other, because... The key issue is the rebuilding of the temple and God sustaining them to, to do that. So, yeah, so, so it's not it's not built yet. Uh, chapter four. Want to do this one real fast? Sure. <laughs> uh, then the angel who talked with me returned and he wakened me. Again, we have all these night dreams. And he asked me, what do you see? And I said, I see a solid golden lampstand with a bowl at the top of, and seven lights on it. Happy Hanukkah, right? It's a menorah. So I see a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the light. Now, you've seen how these lamps work in the ancient Near Eastern world, especially in the, in the world of this particular time. Um, I, I think you, the clay pots and you have oil here and a little, a little wick that comes out and the oil functions as a continual fuel source for the wick, right? So what you have here is a menorah with seven wicks on it and then you have seven channels to the light, right? So there are seven means by which oil is brought to those lights. And then, just in case it wasn't crazy enough, there are also two olive trees by it. One on the right and one on the left. So it's kind of a beautiful scene here. You've got a menorah with channels of oil going to the menorah, seven of them, and you have two olive trees on each side. And I asked the angel who talked with me, as we would, what are these, my Lord? And he said, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I don't. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, But by my spirit, says the Lord. I think it's probably best to understand the menorah as um, a figural symbol of the temple itself. So here you have the temple in menorah form with the lights that are there, with the oil that's there. And now Zerubbabel, the king, the Davidic king who's on the throne now on the far side of the exile, Um, He is told, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. And then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. So do you hear what the force of this is? There's an encouragement to Zerubbabel to recognize the source of his strength and his power, of his political leadership is in the Lord Almighty himself. And what's at the core of what Zerubbabel is supposed to do in his profession? To build the temple. To bring the capstone. And as he brings the capstone out, what are the shouts? Blessing. Blessing. Or grace, grace. Some of you might have translations that say grace to it, grace to it. Grace or blessings. And then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know 
that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Here's a beautiful verse, verse 10. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Small things. God begins with small things and he builds great things. The small things, I think, here intimate the beginnings of the foundation of the temple. But on these small things are built the big, um, the big uh, means of God's, of God's grace. Uh, verse, um, uh, you know, men will rejoice when they see, verse 10, the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. That's enough to keep children up at night. Um, but again, what do we see here? Now, with the temple being built, Zerubbabel was given the charge, build the temple. I will see to it by my own power that you finish the temple. The Lord will sit on the throne in his temple. And from that place, his seven eyes, and what that, what that means, I think, is the perfection of his sight, not his seven, it's not Freaky Friday, not the seven eyeballs kind of rolling throughout the land, but the seven, his seven eyes, the perfection of his sight, will from that place observe the entirety of the cosmos and to see all that's going on there. I, we, we can't make enough of this. I don't think we can make enough of the significance of the temple within the worldview of the Old Testament and, frankly, the worldview of the New Testament as well. Isn't it interesting that we heard, have Revelation 21 as our reading today? I saw the new heavens and the new earth. If you start getting into the book of Revelation, do you know what some of the major images that are used to describe the new heavens and the new earth? It's the temple of God. It's God's temple that now His own temple, His own special place, descends into the earth and the new heavens and the new earth fuse with one another in such a way that now the dwelling place of God is co-equal and coterminous with the dwelling place of humanity. To be in the world and the new heavens and the new earth is to be in the temple of God. And here you have this promise to, to Zerubbabel that once you have this temple built, this is an anticipation of what eternity and immortality will be. Well, then I asked the angel, well, what are the two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And I love that. You have to go, Why does, what's going on here? Verse 12. And I asked him again. And I, I, I guess he didn't want to answer him. He says, well, what are the two olive branches besides the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? And he said, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Does that help you any? <laughs> well, we don't know. It's, it's, it's left to our imagination in a way to think about this. The most obvious answer about... The identification figuratively of these two olive trees, I think the most obvious identification would be Joshua and Zerubbabel. You have Joshua, who's the high priest. You have Zerubbabel, who's the king. These two are the means by which God is prefiguring what he will do in time and its fullness through a single figure who is both prophet, priest, and king, or all three. Um, so I think that that's a very fair reading on this. But the truth of the matter is we're not sure who these two are who go about the whole world doing the bidding of the Lord, in effect, bringing the oil of God's temple as a grace to the entirety of the world. They're pressing that oil and bringing it throughout the whole known world. Um, uh, chapter 5. I'm going to do one more thing, then I'll let you go. I know we all have kids to pick up. One more. The flying scroll. We've got to finish with the flying scroll. I looked again, and there was, with, there was uh, a flying scroll. And... I. Uh, 
And he asked me, what do you see? And I said, I see a flying scroll, a 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. So a, a cubit here, this, and the, and some of you have cubit language, a cubit was about 50 centimeters. So what you have here is a 30 foot long scroll, 15 feet wide. That's a big scroll. And what does the scroll say? Well, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on the one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. Do those sound familiar to you? Those are the commandments 3 or 4 and commandments 8 of the Ten Commandments. Both commandments on one of the sides of the scroll, but in their singularity, probably referring to the whole of the Decalogue. So all the Ten Commandments stand over you. And what do they say? Everyone who swears falsely will be banished. And the Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out. It will enter the house of the thief. And it will enter the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it will remain in his house and destroy it, both its timbers and um, its stones. Well, what's the claim here? I think the claim here that the prophet is reminding them of is, again, born out of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, just because you're on the far side of the of the judgment of exile doesn't mean that the covenant relationship that I've established with you, one of blessings and cursings, does not continue in its effect. And what we see, and I, we can't get into it because the next one is about wick, wick, the wicked woman. Uh, you know, don't, don't, sorry about that, ladies. Um, but uh, woman, the wickedness is portrayed as a woman in, in the next section. And that's simply because wickedness in Hebrew is a feminine noun. Just so you know, righteousness is a, fem is a feminine noun too. So that is worth saying that. So is wisdom. All these things are worth remembering. Um, but what you see here is that the covenant, the covenant obligations of God on His people continue to function before them to remind them of their need of a priest and a king. We need a priest. We need a king. We need those two who will bring the oil of God's presence throughout the world. So what you have in these rather wild visions of Zechariah that cause us to put our seatbelts on interpretively, what you have here is a reminder that God has not forgotten. And what has He not forgotten? He has not forgotten the unique means by which He will bring His redemption to His people and to the world through a priest and through a king. And in one day, He tells us in chapter 2, in one day I will remove all the sins of, of the land. So Lord, thank You for this, this, uh, these prophecies, these visions and they continue to challenge our imagination. They continue, Lord, to offer us encouragement that you have remembered and you will remember your promises to us. In Jesus' name, amen.